episode of Rank and Review. This episode, your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons and his guest Sky Brandon are going to look at six sci-fi scares. And these six films are all done by very talented filmmakers. So we're going to call this one a director masterclass edition. It's great to have Sky back on the show and it's great to talk about these six towering pieces of science fiction. Now, it's interesting to me that uh, when you have filmmakers who have won their Oscars, who have made their classics, who have established themselves, they're going to tackle science fiction, they're going to tackle the most difficult genre ever. But because they are who they are, they get the greatest cast, the greatest budget, and the greatest production design available. What they do with it is what we're going to discuss this week. As usual, I'm going to warn you about spoilers, and I'm going to warn you about coarse language. And as usual, I'm going to thank you so much for listening to Rank and Review. And I'm going to encourage you to send me feedback at rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W. I anticipate people disagreeing with me this week. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the 98th episode of Rank and Review. So uh, here we are. Sky, Welcome. Brandon, he came back. He's back again. <laughs> he said it. He meant it. He's doing it. It took me longer than maybe anticipated, but hey, I'm back. You do not hold the record at all. Two <laughs> friends of ours yeah. were given their movies before the first episode aired. Okay? Mm-hmm. This is going to be episode 98. They still haven't. They still have not watched the movies or, you know. Or admitted, you can tell me after a recording. Who yeah, are. or admitted that they won't watch the movies. They just have them. <laughs> they just claim no ownership. So, today we're going to talk about science fiction, yeah. director masterclass. Right. They're all pretty, uh, for the most part, pretty yeah. ambitious Simple. science fiction movies, Simple. and they are all made from directors who have either had great success in the genre or are generally considered awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, some interesting adaptations, either of previous films or books, or a combination of both, or, yeah. and then, yeah. 
So uh, I talked to you a little bit before we started recording, but for me, when you're working on a tableau as big as this, like I understand that science fiction is the hardest genre, period. It just is. It's the toughest nut to crack. But to me, if you are James Cameron or, you know, Ridley Scott or, you know, you're this name, you're the guy who made Terminator, you're the guy who made Blade Runner, and you have like a $200 million budget to make a movie. Expectation levels are high. My expectations go up. Yeah. I have this real worry that I'm going to come off super snobby this episode. Because <laughs> a few episodes ago, I was telling you all the reasons why you should look past all of the problems in Deep Star 6 and just enjoy this <laughs> 80s monster movie for what it is, right? They had no money. They were trying so hard, you guys. And now that so, cap has been turned around. Exactly. And, and for a low-budget monster movie, you will find that my sympathies are there. But not so my, much. My ire sometimes gets up, especially you know with, with with these really capable directors. Basically, their limitation was only themselves in a certain degree. Like, yeah, if Ridley Scott wants something on screen, he can have something on screen. You know, yeah. if if uh, James Cameron says make it so, that shit happens. The only <laughs> thing I can think of, and I don't know if this is the case with any of these ones that we're going to talk about, is well, maybe Solaris. Maybe I have to check. But it's like, were they trying to cram it in between other projects? Was it something that they were trying to like, hey, this is our window to have this actor and this director and whatever. Yeah. Sometimes I might cut them some slack going, well, they only had 35 days to shoot this thing mm -hmm. or, or whatever. But I don't know that that was the case with any of these. I don't think so. I think these are all very big budget prestige pictures. Yeah. And uh, like, <laughs> I don't want to say I hated all of them because that's not true, actually. I did like some of them. But... I think that generally speaking, I will find it easier to speak about the stuff that bothered me than the stuff that didn't. Right. <laughs> Full disclaimer. Yeah. Well, on my podcast site on rankingreview.ca, it says, you know, I don't want to be about hate. I don't want to be the guy who says, this sucks, this sucks, this sucks, everything about this sucks. If you watch this movie, you're stupid, blah, 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 blah. I think that's boring. I'm, it's not interesting. <laughs> right? Yeah. Opinions are like assholes. Everybody has one. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I like to dig into it a little bit. But... Like I said, because of the amount of talent involved, I think I'm going to be a little bit, a little bit heavier-handed in my criticisms. Yep. Is there anything you want to say? Why did you choose the list? You you picked this out of many. So there was a couple, and that there's some films that were in the group of six that are favorites of mine, mm -hmm. and they were mixed in with a couple that I never seen seen yet. Right. Um, it's funny, for us, since my wife and I, we had our daughter, our movie watching has just di dipped off. Even, yeah. you know, she's getting to an age now where, you know, it's easier. But as I'll talk about, some of them, like, I was a projectionist for a while, right out of university. Right. To, to complement my acting career. And so I was seeing movies all the time. And so sometimes it's like, oh, yeah, I keep track. I right. know what movies are coming out and when. But some of them, like Prometheus, I just never got to because my daughter was at an age where I'm like, there's no way I'm getting out of the house to go see that thing. I can't watch Prometheus with the kids because it will traumatize them. Exactly. <laughs> and if I wait till they go to bed, I might not make it through the movie. <laughs> I might just fall asleep out of sheer exhaustion. So um, I guess that's kind of why. And you know, the directors were directors that I liked. And yeah. yeah, yeah, that's why I jumped on that one. Well, um, I think I'm just going to jump right in. I'm all, I'm all eager to go. All right. <laughs> We are going to discuss James Cameron's super hit, Avatar. Yep. Um, we're going to talk about Cloud Atlas from the Wachowski siblings. Yep. And Tickfer. And right, Tom Tickfer. Uh, that's right. Because they split it. They yeah. both directed three, three of, of the six stories. That's right. We'll get there. Uh, we're going <laughs> to talk about Sphere. Uh, this comes from Barry Levinson. 
this was the movie he did the same year he did Wag the Dog. He and uh, right and uh, Dustin Hoffman did two, two movies, movies simultaneously. <laughs> <laughs> they were waiting for the special effects to finish on Sphere, so they shot, shot another movie. <laughs> uh, Steven Soderbergh doing a remake of uh, Stanislav Lem science fiction film called Solaris. Uh, Ridley Scott's prequel to the Alien franchise, Prometheus. Good timing on that. Sequel, yeah. yeah. Like, Kevin's coming out like in two weeks. Yeah, May nineteenth or something. And then we're gonna close with Christopher Nolan's Inception. So pretty, pretty big sci-fi we got talking about here. Lots of special effects, lots of epic movies. Yeah. You, you almost got two lists in one here. There's a lot of like three-hour <laughs> like <laughs> enjoy the sit. Um, all right, well, thanks for being here. Why don't you go? Let's go. Good. This is great. Even if you weren't a huge fan of like the Titanic, yeah, I think you had reason to be excited about Avatar. Well, we have Terminator, Aliens. Yeah, absolutely. The Abyss, yeah. I think, is just yeah. delicious. So, uh, yeah, and uh, he's sort of been a little bit more prestige director. He's been doing documentary films. He's been he won his Oscar. Two thousand nine, Avatar arrives, and until. <laughs> Until that point, I guess Titanic, I think, had been the highest grossing film. Was it still? Maybe. Or did, I think yeah, he, it could have been. He may have broken his own record because uh, Avatar... Worldwide, maybe. Hey? Yeah. Avatar was a monster hit. Yeah. And I remember seeing it in the theater, and I remember being swept up in just the technology. Like, I realized that it's not Gollum. It's not like, uh, you know, these completely CG-created creatures... He filmed the actors, he filmed actors like Sigourney Weaver, who were recognizable, turned them into blue people, and you could tell who they were. Yeah. <laughs> you could see their face, you could feel their performance, like it, it didn't feel like a cartoon. And they introduced us to this world of Pandora, which is richly populated with crazy aliens, very tribal, I think it's fair to say, uh, alien species that lives there. And we have the classic sort of crash of technology and nature. Uh, I came out of the theater and I could not make any argument against the feat of the special effects. But I could make other arguments. Mm -hmm. But before I crack my knuckles and get into that, <laughs> I'm going to give you a chance to get some words in on Avatar. Well, when it came out, we had recently moved to Ontario and we, we got to it not when it first came out. I think it was, you know, I'd been out for a few weeks and I was getting lots of buzz and then some friends had seen it and they're like, no, you really should try to see it in the movie theater. You won't have the same experience if you see it at home, no matter how good your TV is. Right. So we made the drive to Kitchener-Waterloo and watched it in 3D on the big screen. And yeah, I'm glad we did. I can remember going, that was pretty jaw-droppingly amazing. For me, it's as much about 
the landscapes and stuff like that that they can create like it's you mentioned Gollum before and the, the kind of transition into representing people as characters that stuff is great and that's usually where your hand gets tipped yeah right and you're like oh, I can see some holes in your technology there oh, that didn't move quite as good as amazing as Gollum is they yeah. had to do two passes for every Gollum tip. yeah one with Andy Serkis and one with nobody on frame and yeah. they combined the two yeah in this technology yeah what you do, you can look at a monitor and your character will mimic your movement. It's yeah, right there. Exactly. So it's amazing tech. It really yeah. is. You know, the story, and I guess it, it, I remember making the joke and I don't think I was the only person who did it. It was like, it's like dances with wolves in space. Like there, it is that, and I think we'll keep seeing stories like that because we keep doing shit like this, where in terms of, I can see people like, you know, an indigenous people, and, and I don't know if people were, if that was something that James Cameron was setting out mm-hmm. explicitly to do, but it certainly got turned into that and became this kind of nature movie. And then all of a sudden he was getting invited to like mining sites. Yeah, I remember he came to Alberta. And, it's and a multi-million dollar Fern Gully. Yeah. yeah it's it really, yeah. really is. Yeah. But I think Fern Gully might have been a little bit more narratively complex. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you're going exactly where I'm going. It's it's astonishing to me that the same man who wrote a screenplay as original and tight and it, like perfectly serviceable as the original Terminator, yeah, wrote Avatar. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a bit on the. Like, it's embarrassing at times. Yeah. It really, really is. Um, and I understand you're working in broad strokes and that action doesn't necessarily always have to you know move you to your soul, but I get the feeling like. Cameron was trying to stir us to our soul, <laughs> right. you know, this huge tree of life that the Navi people sort of base their entire culture around, right? Well, when the evil forces of man shows up, and yes, you're absolutely right in this movie, man is the invader. Yeah. And I understand the allegory of that. Like, we show up in a place that didn't belong to us and we utterly fuck it up. Yeah. Where it gets offensive is if you do take this sort of native allegory at all seriously. Right, I think that's what you mean. Yeah. I think that it becomes actually straight up offensive. I'm not going to speak on behalf of indigenous people. Right. But a white man turns into this green creature so he can infiltrate the Navi tribe. Yeah. In three months, he masters their entire culture, basically becomes their de facto leader, and then leads them on a rebellion against the evil machines. Okay. That's, that's already, I think I've got, a, I've got some real issues with that, but we've been there before. You could at least say, okay, well, narratively. But as a storyteller, as a screenplay writer, the stories that should be told here, our main character, I'm all over the place, I know. Uh, he's, he, he is in a wheelchair. His body is broken. When he's in the avatar, he can run, he can, feed, he can do whatever he you know, wants to do. And your classic sort of story structure would say that he would learn at the end of the day that he doesn't need to be the avatar to be a heroic figure. Right. That does not happen. No, not he, at all. He gives up his human body and becomes the... Um, it would be one thing to say, okay, he manages to master this entire quote-unquote primitive culture in three months. That's kind of condescending, I think. But we've seen stories like this in the past, so I can say, okay, well, I will just try and, and deal with it. Then we come to the slaughter of the Navi people and the destruction of that tree. Like, their most sacred religious, for lack of a better term, place is destroyed. Their population is decimated. Mm -hmm. And then Sigourney Weaver dies. 
a white character dies, and our main character is like, now it's fucking on. <laughs> right. Like, uh, just basic story beats this movie is crippled by. Crippled by. And no matter how pretty it is, I can't get past it. Yep. Giovanna Rubisi, I think, is a very strong actor. I don't know what he's doing in the movie. He doesn't really have much to do. He doesn't do much service to the plot, even. He ex- gives out a little bit of exposition about the where's and why's they're there. And he has to choke down all the unobtainium dialogue. Yeah. Because the <laughs> the magical ingredient, the MacGuffin, the, <laughs> the, the, the humanity is after on this planet is literally called unobtainium. Yeah. <laughs> maybe it was the placeholder. <laughs> like exactly. And then he just got another Doesn't that feel like he's like, well, the this very sacred ore and then he puts in quotes in the script unobtainable. Yeah, right. Like <laughs> this is this is the pure that's the reason that we're here. Like I remember watching in the theater, seeing all this 3D effects. There's an amazing scene where the main villain's inside a giant robot, yep. and he checks himself in the rearview mirror, and he got the split focus. And like, I see amazing, amazing technical filmmaking going on, and I cannot, cannot believe how empty the script is. It is shocking. Well, I think too, because in the oh, jeez, oh, correct me if I'm wrong. Did Hurt Locker end up winning Best Picture as well, or did Bigelow only get Director and Avatar got Picture? No, I think Hurt Locker got Best Picture. Picture as well. Yeah. So, I, so I remember there's there's this big push like, oh, this is me. But I think that might be part of the reason why is there's enough people going, well, hold on. Yes, it does look great. Yeah. Like, and I will not say yeah. otherwise. Like, it looks amazing. Yeah. Again, I can't. But, but it looks amazing. But but the animals on this planet, you know, that James Cameron designed for lack of a better word they seem to be a modern animal with some kind of dinosaur-like affectation yeah and extra limbs so i have these weird large trojan horse looking things but they have eight or six legs instead of four you got these weird pterodactyl things but they have two sets of wings and mm-hmm. like it just seemed like things that got cut and pasted together in a computer like yeah I, well and this, as soon as we got introduced to the big flying thing is like well if he doesn't get on that thing yeah i'll be disappointed yeah, exactly. you've, you've tipped your hand so much at this point i'll be disappointed if he doesn't mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was 2009 yeah. here we are in 2017 jim cameron is going to dedicate likely the next 10 years of his career to making four more avatar movies and word on the street is he's largely going to be dismissing the events of the first avatar movie <laughs> It's interesting to me that you'll make like the quote most financially successful movie of all time, but then when you make the sequel, don't acknowledge it. I think if that's true, and right. who knows if it is or not, if that's true, then Jim Cameron knows that he failed on that screenplay. Right, somewhere deep downside, he knows I can write a better story. But if you're Jim Cameron, you can make a movie that is so dazzling with effects that the fact that your screenplay is terrible gets missed by most of the people who watch it. Yeah. No, when I when I watched heartbreaking it, heartbreaking to me. Yeah. Because no. I know people love the shit out of Avatar, and for me, it, it is frustrating. Well, when when I watched it in preparation to chat with you, I watched it with my daughter because she's older now, and so she hadn't seen it. And so she was probably amazed. Too. She quite enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, she was. I'm like, oh yeah, okay, no, it's it's ticking all these boxes. Mm-hmm. You know, she's nine. Yeah. So it's like it's a bit different. 
I don't know, like the, what, what you'd like when you're nine, what you like in your 40 is different. If yeah. I saw Avatar when I was nine, I would have just yeah. probably shit well, my Well, even pants. Star Wars, I rewatched some of it. I still love the hell out of those mm-hmm. movies, but some of the dialogue, it's like, oh, okay. really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I realize, like, is part of this the loss of my childlike sense of wonder? <laughs> <laughs> this conversation has taken a psychological <laughs> turn. True, but like, uh, I don't, like I say, like to be all negative about movies. And this is one of the bigger ones on this list as far as me almost like, hate's a strong word because like I say, it is, you could turn the sound off, you could play your favorite music and you could just be like, whoa, right? Like it is technically an achievement. Like, and you could not say that James Cameron was not a talented filmmaker, but I am shocked that such a talented filmmaker with all, all the money in the world, any whim, any personnel he wants to get your dream on screen. Avatar is his dream on screen, and uh, it's sort of, I think for me, a marker of how far a once truly great filmmaker has fallen. I'm sorry, like, look at those first few movies, Terminator, Aliens, The Abyss, like, damn. (laughs) So, I'm not anxiously anticipating the Avatar sequels, I mean... If and when they finally show if up. They do <laughs> I think I'll probably end up seeing them when they do come out, only because now my daughter has watched this one and go, yeah. oh, that was pretty cool. Yeah. But, I mean, I would say similar things about like the Pirates of the Caribbean sequels, as far as them being visually impressive, but essentially empty. Yeah. And again, maybe if I'm eight or nine, I don't worry about that. I just think, pretty. <laughs> but for me, I need more than pretty. That's it. The music from my dream. They're a whole movement I wrote imagining us meeting again and again in different lives, in different ages. I can't explain it, but I knew when I opened that door... A powerful deja vu ran through my bones. I heard it in a dream. I was in a nightmarish cafe, and the waitresses, they all had the same face. No reason to hide. I know you are Sonmi 451. Yesterday, my life was headed in one direction. Today, it is headed in another. You ever think the universe was against you? Fear. Belief, love, phenomena that determine the course of our lives. These forces begin long before we are born and continue after we perish. So, from a visually spectacular movie to another visually spectacular movie. But what uh, the Wachowski's Cloud Atlas has that I think that Avatar was sorely lacking is some originality. Yep and real gutsy, ambitious sci-fi. No gutsy choices were made in Avatar at all. It was all like, we've seen, here's the hero's journey a hundred times over, only without a proper finish, right? Right. Cloud Atlas is gonna tell six stories over six timelines with eight actors playing different parts and different ethnicities through each of these timelines. The puzzle of the movie for me, and this was my third pass, okay, yep. is trying to figure out 
how and indeed if all of these things are connected or like why we're being shown these particular moments throughout this vast history. And when I say vast history, I mean, I think the earliest story takes place on a slave ship. Yeah. In the, the latest story is they've stopped counting years, but it's some post-apocalyptic. I, did, I think I did the math. I figured it out. Cause, and I think, that, yeah, so like, yeah, 1849 is the Pacific Isles ship. And then it's 1936, 1973, 2012. Um, Which was modern for when the yeah, movie was released. And then the Neo Soul stuff was 2144. And then it goes 106 winters after the fall. So it's like another 106 years, years after, after whatever that. cataclysmic yeah. is. It's when we kind of get that framing device of Tom Hanks as the old guy telling the story right. to the kids. Actually, even beyond that. Sorry. So it's actually, in a way, there's seven. <laughs> I guess. In a weird way, but yeah. Or maybe eight, because they're telling everybody's story. <laughs> well, here's what I will like. Okay, it's incredibly ambitious. Yeah. Uh, if I'm honest, the first time I watched the movie, I had no idea what I thought about it. Like, I, I, I it was almost too much. It was like, it would give me a lot to stew on, it gave me a lot to think of. I know the Wachowskis are talented visual filmmakers, and Tom Tickfer. Um, uh, I've only seen, I think, a couple of his movies. The Run, the Run, and the... Perfume, the story of a murderer, right. but visually very impressive director. I think each, the, the Dolchewski has directed six of the stories, or three of the stories, and he directed three of the stories, and the movie is sort of a collage of their films <laughs> all put together. Yeah. And it's not spoon feeding you, it's basically like making you pay attention and what, what does it all mean? What does this mosaic mean? It's like a Magnolia sci fi spectacle thing. The other layer of interest is that all the actors are playing all these different parts. Yeah. And I think there's a double-edged sword to that. I think it's really cool for the actors to say, I'm playing seven parts in six films, or it's actually <laughs> one movie. You know? It gives them a lot of fun meat to chew, but it distracts a little bit. When you hear when you see Maya Ning playing like this uh, Mexican woman, Yeah. Uh, I, I don't have a problem with them going against like cross-gender casting in this case because I think the intent of the film is so obviously good that I, I don't take it personally. I don't think it was like they're denying somebody a job by doing this. They're just saying to the template that we're using this cast of actors to tell this story. So if we need a future person that looks vaguely Asian, then we make that affectation. But when you're saying, holy crap, that's Halle Berry as an old Indian man. And holy crap, Tom Hanks has got another crazy layer of makeup on him to make him look like this insane author who, who throws a critic off the top <laughs> of a building, right? For that second, when you see the character and readjust, you're not watching the movie. You're like, oh, there's Tom Hanks again. Right. And, uh, and there's some instances, when the first time I watched it, you, don't, you didn't even sometimes realize. Sometimes you miss it. Yeah. yeah. It's not until in the credits where they kind of show people, like, oh my God, I didn't know that was Halle Berry as the... As the guy who cut off the, 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 the collar, security collar in yeah. Neo Soul. Didn't catch that the first time at all. And how could you? It looks yeah. nothing like her. No, no. And, and no. so I like uh, like the ambition. And it's amazing in a lot of ways that they got the movie made. Like this, I haven't read the book, I'll confess. But it seems to me like one of these novels that is <laughs> just unfilmable. And because of that, this creative team got together and said, you know what, you guys, fuck you, we're filming it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So I think that it's mostly successful, but I can't like get enthusiastic about it. Like it took three passes of this three hour epic for me to decide 
Yeah, I like it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it, I think that the intention was when you sat down to just have your mind blown through the back of the theater. I don't know that it achieves that, but it definitely earns the right to say, give it its day in court. I think it is a totally worthy watch. But I'm here to get your opinion. Uh, I This one's high on my list. I, I love ambitious filmmaking. I don't think a play or a movie or a piece of art has to apologize to make its audience work. I'd rather that than Avatar. Than Avatar, absolutely. <clears throat> um, the Respect first time, me. Yeah. Respect me. <laughs> the first time I saw it, I was in Michigan. I was doing a, the Stratford Festival was this Michigan residency every year in October where they take 12 actors, two teams of six. One group goes to one section of Michigan and the other six go another route. And you go out over one to two weeks, usually, usually two, and you're put in a pair of two. You get your, your, your teams and you do workshops with schools, elementary, high school, university. And we were in, oh, I have to look, I have to look at the day to remember what city. It's when Obama got reelected, too. Okay. We were in Michigan. And it was in the movie theater across the street from the hotel we were in. So the six of us went across and watched it. I had just seen some trailers, didn't know the book. Yeah. And I was like, that was amazing i know i did not get yeah. all that movie no i'll have to watch it again someday but they, that was holy crap what did i just watch yeah and the next day i'm at a point of going to a bookstore and getting a copy in the mall i didn't buy the book but i went i, I saw it out I'm like there it is and i picked up the book how the hell is this book structured structured and it and it is different and it, it's it starts with the slave ship and it goes chronologically into the future and you get the whole future story in the middle, and then it starts working backwards again to finish the to story, finish the story back at the slave ship. Yeah. That's the structure. Yeah. Where I think they realized that to film it, they needed to, to make it maybe a bit more visually... Maybe they didn't have to. Maybe they didn't have to do that. But they've obviously interwoven the stories. Yeah. And where all the main characters in each one had the comet birthmark as the mark of reincarnation in each one of them, that kind of goes out the window because they've got people who had the birthmark in one timeline. And then we see them again. We see them again as someone who doesn't have the birthmark. So where in the book, it seems like this person, person, yeah. keeps getting reincarnated in different genders, places in the world as the story goes through. This is like everyone's kind of mixed in a weird way. They collaged way. it. Yeah. And, and in some instances it works well in that Tom Hanks's journey, if you try to look at the main characters as a journey through time, he starts as this horrible doctor who's poisoning this guy to yeah. get all his goods and then by the end of his journey way, way in the future he's kind of turned into this guy who finally, finally did the right thing and now he's this old man telling the story he's come out the other side. Well, Where Hugo Weaving is just fucking bad. Across the board. board. Yeah. He's just an asshole. Yeah. No matter what time but you find him. Again, I, I thought that was interesting because I noticed that too. We didn't really see any character that Hugo Weaving played that we remotely identified with. No. And for a while I was thinking like, we're all good. We're all bad. We're all everything. We're all Asian. We're all American. We're all, yeah. we're all humans. We're all together. But yeah. this, this one outlier kind of works against that sort yeah. of theory. Yeah. Um, two other things that I would say, uh, and I, I, again, uh, I like the I like the movie, but here we are. <laughs> Strange tone shifts 
one of the timelines has Jim Broadbent plays a guy who's uh, an editor and his, the author of the book that he's published has thrown a man off of a roof and yeah. as a consequence the book has become incredibly, incredibly successful uh, but a bunch of thugs are coming to get money from him. He goes to his brother for help. His brother in turn commits him yeah. to a, a mental ward. And this whole sub-story of like these old people being abused in this place is played hugely for comedy. Like, it's really, really big in a way that yeah. none of the other stories were. Yeah, in a way, at a certain point, each story has its genre, genre in itself. Yeah, yeah. But again, much like all the actors playing the same characters, once I realized, whoa, we're going into really shrill comedy here, it took me out of it for a second. Right. And then I had to readjust. Right. And all of these, even just these microsecond pulling me out of it, I think it, it, it breaks the spell that the movie's trying to weave. Before the movie came out, they released a seven-minute trailer called The Cloud Atlas Suite, where they played a huge portion of the score over a collage of images of the movie. And I remember getting chills right. seeing the trailer. I didn't get chills seeing the movie. I liked the movie. Mm -hmm. I found the movie a, a big meal, and I liked thinking about it and trying to figure it out. But the Cloud Atlas suite had more emotional impact in some ways. Right. Than Cloud Atlas. Right. So it's weird that they, they, they took all those hours of footage, <laughs> cut it down to seven minutes, and got that whoa feeling that I think that they were going for. Yeah. <laughs> but when they stretched it to three hours, I was still like satisfied. Like I said, I wasn't like, oh, what a piece of shit. I watched this three times just trying to put the puzzle together. Right. And as I sit, I'm not going to pretend that I have all the answers for you. But I think that they do. I think that all the choices that were made were very specific. I trust the filmmakers and the, uh, and the screenwriting here. Like, yeah. Everything that's there is there for a reason. They're not just leaving it to the audience to figure out. Yeah. We may not figure it out, but they figured it out. And that gives them credibility that some sci-fi lacks. <laughs> well, and, and watching it this third time, too. Because in the meantime, I've started this master's degree that I'm working on currently. And one of the classes I just recently finished this past term was an English grad class and we're looking at uh, the whole theme is curiosity and how you know the time that from 1580 to 1700 there's this whole thing negative connotation about the curious and that, that it gets wrapped up into going across you know, you know the colonization in Virginia down and you know we got rallies world history and all this stuff and some of the names that came up in there are like Cavendish and Frobisher all these travelers, and then I rewatched this movie, and those names, and those names are, and it's like, well, obviously that's on purpose. Yeah. I mean, I'm actually just getting shivers a little bit thinking about it now. It's yeah. like, man, like I'm sure I could come across something in some kind of book someplace else and go back and watch this movie and go, that's a connection to that. Well, and that's one thing that I will say. Like, I'm not always on board with the Wachowski siblings. Like, I really like The Matrix, that yeah. first one. The rest of the Matrix movies, I could really do without. But like even little details, like calling one of the ships the Nebuchadnezzar, right. one of the earliest known kings, like that's not an accident, right? But they made that choice, and those smart kind of choices are all through this movie. Yeah. Um, and uh, there was a couple edits too that you know I remember seeing the first time when that was a great edit. Yeah. And and edits between. I can't imagine the scheduling. Oh my god! <laughs> that they would have had to do with actors. Like, okay, no, I need that person. And like, you got two different teams sh shooting this thing. Yeah. There was the one with um, on the slave ship, 
who's one of the supporting actors, right? Who's playing, you know, the the, the hideaway who's trying to make it right. to San Francisco with uh, the Jim Sturgis's character, and he's running the mast of the ship because he's the, he's been challenged to to do Drop something. Drop the mast, and, and it's intercut with Jim Sturgis in Neo Soul running on the bridge and doing a similar thing at the same time Jim Sturgis is if you look at those two bookend stories you get someone talking about you know the emancipation and freedom of people and in the future he plays a guy who's trying to free someone who's been like it's like man my head is spinning and it's all of these cool edits at the same time and then you'll get that sort of juxtaposition and then the next scene will jump from another era from another story and again you're constantly being dislodged it's a, it's a very deliberate narrative choice like but yeah I think that I don't know how you would do it like this is an impossible movie to approach from a directing standpoint like as a technical feat like you said not just like cracking the code on the screenplay but deciding we're going to use a cast of actors and repeat them yeah. we're going to like you know the approach is, is very interesting so uh if the broad themes aren't working for you or, you know, uh, you can, you know, just get lost in the technical expertise that it would have taken to make, make that atlas. Yeah. I remember uh, too, uh, before we move on to the next one, I remember when the movie came out and there was a couple of stories that came out where people were getting like oh, Jim Sturgis and Hugo Weaving and like they're playing these characters in Soul in the Future. Like how dare they make them affected uh, like they're vaguely Asian. Asian and, like, and but it was, did someone ask this person who was making the comment, did you watch the movie? Because everybody's playing everything. Men play women. Women play men. Yeah, it's it's across the map. You know, Halle Berry's playing a white Jew, yeah. Jewish woman in one scene. and I think yeah. that, since we're talking about it, let's talk about it. I think that we have moved upon a place where uh, things like, say, Al Pacino and Scarface, it's probably not going to ever happen again. Yeah. If you want to tell a story of a, you know, a, a Spanish or a Mexican immigrant who comes into the United States and takes over the world of organized crime, go ahead and hire a Mexican actor, okay? Like, that just, it just makes sense. Yeah. And the same thing, you see this all the time with gay characters in big Hollywood movies. They have that gay friend, yeah. almost always played by a straight actor. Why? Is there a shortage of gay <laughs> actors in Los Angeles? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, but overall, generally speaking, I don't necessarily, I'm not offended by this. Like, uh, I say cast the right person for the part, in which case, if you're casting a drag queen, casting a drag queen would probably make, the make a lot of sense, sense right? Um, but I think it's where your heart's at. I think if only one of these characters had that affected thing to it, we would all go, what, what was that fuck? about? But... Clearly, this sort of kaleidoscopic, epic vision that they were doing, and the conscious choice to use the same actors and the same characters, it was it was an artistic choice. It wasn't it wasn't saying anything about or it wasn't even saying we're all the same necessarily. It was just yeah. like if you were doing a play and you had a troupe of actors, you had nine actors and you're doing a play that had thirty characters in it, right? Well, some people are going to be doing more than one job, yeah. And they sort of approached it that way. They didn't have to. They made that choice. Yeah. And I'm glad that they did. Yeah. Anything else you want to say about Cloud Atlas? No, I no. I should probably stop. Yeah. <laughs> I like it a lot and it's a conversation piece. And uh, for big, you know, heady sci-fi, if you walk away talking about it, I think it's a win. I don't know. What is it? Smoke house almonds. It's an American spaceship. 
In the 8,000 years of recorded history, this is a first. You are now online with an alien intelligence. Its name is Jerry? He's happy. What happens if Jerry gets mad? Hey guys, I'm getting a reading on the sonar. You're not alone out there. So, uh, 1999 was probably one of the best years for cinema, like, that we've been alive. <laughs> 1998, the year immediately preceding it. Not so much. Not so much. Usually you have a year like 1999, you figure it's a good sign for cinema. Was, was it 77? It was another one of those big Hollywood years where everyone said, that's just an amazing year for movies. Yeah. And it's going to show us where movies are headed. And in the next few years, we just get nothing. So always be wary if you have an insanely good year of film <laughs> because you're going to have a sit. But anyway, in 1998, uh, Barry Levinson, who's a filmmaker who I like, put together a cast of Sam Jackson, who I like, Sharon Stone, who I usually like, Sometimes she kind of rubs me the wrong way, but most of the time I think she's on point as an actress. And the, the famously difficult <laughs> Dustin Hoffman. Uh, and this was in the phase where he was playing the, you know, 50-year-old, five-foot-nothing action star. He was doing movies like Outbreak. Yeah, that was and, 96. Yeah, yeah. and, and uh, so he's a prestige Oscar actor, but he's sort of, you know, trying to... He's, he's taking Tom Cruise roles for some reason for this period in the late 90s. So here comes Sphere, based off of a Michael Crichton novel, which I remember reading, I think maybe when I was in high school, because uh, uh, right around the time Jurassic Park came out, I decided that Michael Crichton was cool. And then I read three or four books, and I decided adaptations of Michael Crichton are cool. So... <laughs> um, He's going to read everything. Yeah, exactly. Um, but basically, an object is discovered under the Pacific Ocean. Uh, they, they assume it's a spacecraft. But uh, the military wants to know what the hell is up, and they get a team of specialists to come in and crack this code. So we have this long, sort of drawn-out journey, epic journey, to get to the sphere and to sort of see what it is they're dealing with. What happens to me in this sort of weird conglomeration is I've got some uh, Abyss vibes here, yep. and uh, I've got a little bit of... Uh, 2001 with this communication with what seems to be an alien intelligence and then this weird manifestation of the fears of the people that we start seeing here. right but at the end of the day and like i can say i like everybody involved this seems like a two-hour conversation about a science fiction movie more than it feels like a, a science, science fiction, fiction movie. movie they're constantly talking about what is happening what should we do what will happen if we do that Right? And we're being talked through the whole movie. And sci-fi is a visual medium. Barry Levinson has given us some really interesting films. Like, this is a guy who will do anything. And that's what I respect about him. Like I said, the same year he made Sphere, he made Wag the Dog. And unfortunately, I think Wag the Dog is an amazing film. And I think Sphere, despite the talent involved, is kind of boring. Well, once they kind of... You know, people start dying off. Leah Shriver's in there, and mm -hmm. I, I've, I found it somewhat interesting. And in that you know, they've, they've 
assembled this team based on Dustin Hoffman's character's recommendation and you know he keeps having this conversation look I just made up this fucking report because they asked me to make up a report I didn't actually think that you know (laughs) someday we would get called in and here we are working as a team if Um, we need an alien intelligence we're going to need a psychologist we're going to need a mathematician we're going to need a physicist we're going to need the other I I mean I understand that as a theoretical But just because you're the guy who wrote that paper doesn't mean you're the guy to shake hands with ET or right. whatever this turns out to be. And I do appreciate that they set that up going like, I don't know who thought this was ever going to happen. Right. So you, you, you don't have this crack team that's like, here we are. We know what we're going to do. No. Like, they don't even know why they're being assembled for the first part of the movie. And in a weird way, I, I do like it. If, and sometimes you'll have like a military in charge, like the Peter Coyote character, unfazable, unshakable. Let's blow it up. Right? Yeah. <laughs> we didn't have that. Stephen Lang in Avatar. Exactly. Yeah. Right. But we didn't have that necessarily here. Everybody wanted to solve this mystery, and it was an interesting mystery, and it was a good cast. So I kept on like. But it would bug me. Is it's just here's this this you know they're here they are they're down underwater. These really smart people. Yet they don't piece together right away that you know he didn't like squid because he was afraid of calamari because he read twenty thousand leagues under the sea when he was a kid and now there's a big squid like it, it takes these smart people a really long time to figure out something that we probably figured out right away yeah and uh, the movie keeps them in jeopardy because you know that's a necessity to the plot but. Until quite late in the game, I still got the feeling like they could all just get in the sub and, and, and float away, right? Yeah. Like, when things were getting too crazy, like, they did have an exit strategy until that explosion happened. I think that they were kind of, their hands were tied after that point. Yeah. But a lot of creepy shit had happened before then. Um, and, you know, I mean, you don't want to fight the premise. I, I get tired of listening to reviews where people are just like, that's fake, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, why do they stay and talk to this intelligence? Because I think, and this might be the missed opportunity of this movie, and it's going to echo in another movie that we, we're going to talk about later, the idea of talking to this intelligence, whether it be alien, whether it be like a ghost in the machine, like yeah. an artificial intelligence camera machine, we sort of are told that this is, in fact, a time machine. Um, yeah. Somebody was trying to do some time machine, and they ended up at that place in the ocean. And obviously that's not what was intended. And so this thing has been sitting there waiting to be found for a long, long, long time. Yeah. And the old machines just sort of wind well, down. And that's one of the things that I... Because when I watched it, I watched it when it was in the movie theater. And mm-hmm. then I have not watched it again. So that's an indication. That's, that's an indication in itself that obviously is like, mm, yeah, I never need to see it again. Yeah. And then so not until I, I watched it again for this. The one thing I had forgotten, I'm like, oh, that's actually kind of cool. Why didn't they make... Why didn't he make more of this? Whether Crichton in the book or the movie, right? But it, that that realization of, oh, this alien spaceship is actually American mm-hmm. from the future. Like, and then that's you know that becomes the mystery. Then is what happened? What's yeah. the event that sent it? And back? why is it a threat then? Yeah. Right? Yeah. The movie is also full of these trailer moments, as I like to call them. Uh, you know, where someone says something really melodramatic to punctuate a scene. Right. The big one for this one is what happens if Jerry gets mad, right? Or uh, <laughs> you guys are missing the one thing that's totally obvious. It's reflecting everything but us, <laughs> right? These really sort of dramatic yeah. parts. I, I remember reviewing a, a 70s film, uh, adaptation of uh, Richard Matheson novel, The Haunting on Hill House. 
And they did it so much that it became like funny. Like, are we safe? Are, are we? we? <laughs> right? Like, and uh, it doesn't quite get there. Like, it doesn't quite get there. But <laughs> there really is that aspect to this movie. Um, young Hungry performance from Lee Schreiber. Like, at the time, I believe he was the guy from the Scream movies when he was doing this. And I can imagine getting cast in a Barry Levinson movie with Dustin Hoffman, Sam Jackson. Yeah, I think she was in Hurricane. Hurricane was the next year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, like, this was a, you know, a good role for him. And I think he did fine with it. I mean, his job was to be likable, helpful, and then die. Right? So we feel bad. And I do think it's the one character death in the movie which is sort of felt. Peter Coyote, the head military guy, gets cut in half by a door. Yeah, whatever. Nah. <laughs> you know, Queen Latifah, that was Queen Latifah, right? Who goes out in the jellyfish, I want to say. Yeah, well, it wasn't also... One of my notes. Yeah, 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 she was there, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and for me, like, that would be the and, time And Huey Lewis is the, is the pilot that brings Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> That's right. I was like, Huey Lewis! <laughs> I haven't seen you since you peed in shortcuts. <laughs> um, yeah, but I know what you mean when she gets attacked out. Yeah, yeah. See, right there for me. Okay, so what we thought it was a spaceship. It's a time machine. It's conscious. And it manifested killer army of jellyfish that just killed one of our team. Let's go regroup. Yeah. You know? And it would have been a really easy plot thing to say they couldn't. There was a storm up top, or, you know, their equipment was being fucked with by Jerry, or, 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 or. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I think that there was so much air in the proceedings that I was constantly just wanting the movie to get energized, wanting the movie to be more exciting than it was. Because I don't think Sphere is one of the best Crichton novels necessarily, but, like, on paper, it sounds like it would be a compelling story. And with that cast... I think that people might have been right to, you know, get a little bit excited about yeah. seeing this Spear movie. And that's the essential missing ingredient. It's not an exciting movie. It's telling an interesting story with a capable cast, but there is no life to it. There's this weird coldness throughout the whole thing where I, I don't feel anything. Like I say, that moment where uh, Liv Shiver dies, it's mainly because of how bad a death it would be. Like, right. he gets pinned down by this piece of equipment that falls down during the explosion, and he can see through a middle grate this burst of flame coming up towards him, and he basically gets burned alive, screaming. Like, it's, it's a bad way to go. <laughs> and it's hard not to empathize with that. You know? uh, I might take fire over being fed to a shark, but... Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Either way, you're not having a good day. I think part of the problem for me, too, this one and some of the other ones, too, it's very important, some of the other ones, you kind of have this male character who has obviously, it's a bit different in this one, but you know, he and Sharon Stone's characters used to be a couple. Yeah. And so they've kind of, there's this, this personal story that's going on under the umbrella of the bigger one. Which is much less interesting than the bigger story, but yes. yeah. And I just, I guess maybe it's in part I don't buy that relationship mm -hmm. or this or a past story between those two, and then as a result, it falls flat. There is something about uh, the female character, in, in especially this type of dynamic, where it's almost all men and it's very highly militarized. Where yeah. I find that the we'll we'll talk about this with Charlize Theron in in, yeah. in Prometheus. Prometheus, they feel this need to 
make it a really cold robotic performance. Like, uh, in order to play with the boys, they have to just shut everything off, you know, and just become yeah. this cold fish. And, uh, I don't know, it, it would be refreshing to see a female character who sort of keeps her herself, you know, when she puts the uniform on. Yeah, and I don't think that's a, a comment that, you know, there are people who are not capable of doing that. I think that the, the scripts that have been written over the, you know, past however many years have not asked them to do it. Or it'll be a script that it was meant for a guy, but they thought, you know what? We need to get some women in this or we're going to be accused of being sexist. So let's give Sharon Stone's agent a call. <laughs> you know, yeah. She was a female character in, in the book as well. But I'm just saying that yeah. does happen a lot of times. Uh, yeah. As originally planned, the character was imagined to be male, but they decide, you know what? You know, let's, yeah. let's switch it up. In the end, does the motivation change significantly if it's a man or a woman? The motivation maybe won't, but the characterization should. Right. Yeah. So says Larry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess not that you know Abyss is a good example of one that works really well. I think, but you know, as far as the sci-fi stuff, usually when people think sci-fi, they think in the future, out in space. Yeah. This one's kind of a, a neat flip. And Cloud Atlas kind of has it in part of its some of its stories because some of them are very what you'd expect sci-fi. But it's kind of interesting about no, here's a science fiction story that's on earth yeah Cont- you know it's contemporary to the time in which it was it came out it's it, it's like it was a nice reminder to go right it doesn't have to be so many thousand spaceships. years in the future yeah. spaceships shooting and you, you, no no um, all of them have a really psychological bent to even avatar or maybe less so than the other ones there's a bunch of kind of interesting character stuff going on but I think that this movie might have been more interesting if it had more Solaris in it and less Avatar. Like, it didn't seem to be being very good at being the spectacle. No. The, the sci-fi spectacle moments largely didn't work. I liked the way the sphere looked. I liked the communication with the actual sphere itself. But, like, the squid attacks or the, the underwater environment, I'm never fully convinced of. Yeah, it was a bit of kind of the Jaws approach, right? You just get to see the like the, sh- the shade of it on the radar thing. Oh my God, that thing's going to be huge, but then you never really see it. But I didn't, I, I, maybe this is me, but for me it didn't seem like, oh, they're playing with our expectations. It felt like Barry Levinson doesn't know how to handle a squid attack, <laughs> so he's not going to show, <laughs> show us it. the squid attack. And I say that as a fan of Barry Levinson. Like, I'm not a fan of Sphere, but he has made fantastic movies. So, yeah. like, uh, do respect, do respect. But yeah, make it more of the what this fear does to them psychologically, because I think that was closer to what was working. Again, this is another one of those movies that's really frustrating because I can see the good movie that's there, but it's not a good movie. Right. <laughs> yep. Yep. I know what you mean. Can I help you? We're looking for Dr. Chris Kelvin. We've received no contact from the Solaris expedition for six months. Why not send in the security force? We did. We feel confident that if you can manage to board the ship, you can negotiate their safe return. Can you tell me what's happening here? I could tell you what's happening. But I don't know if I'd really tell you what's happening. That's not my son. My son is on Earth. And that's not your wife. Where did you come from? They are part of Sonaris. From Academy Award winners James Cameron and Steven Soderbergh. 
How long do you think you can go without sleep? Whatever you desire. You're being manipulated. Whatever you fear. Don't leave me. Don't leave me. It's not human and I'm threatened by that. Whatever you think. She's alive. Becomes real. If all we know, it's driving us crazy so we can watch us kill each other. What does Solaris want from us? If you keep thinking there's a solution, you'll die here. What if what's happening here started happening on Earth? George Clooney. So, uh, of all this, this group of directors, this seems kind of strange. I think one of my personal favorites that we're going to talk about is Steven Soderbergh. He's kind of retired from making feature films. He's been doing TV, TV. exclusively. Um, but especially in this time period from, I will say, like the mid-90s to the early aughts, he was doing almost every year either a film or two, and even the worst of that bunch of movies was an interesting sit. Solaris is a remake slash sort of reinterpretation of uh, the Stanislav's Lem sci-fi classic. And I remember renting the original from the library. And you've, so you've seen I it. watched it on VHS <laughs> in the 1900s, okay? I was a much younger person, and it, to be honest, I watched the whole thing <laughs> like a good student, but I didn't understand it. I don't think it really penetrated me. Right. Um, and I'm not familiar enough with that original to be really worried about what was kept and what was lost. Yeah, and I, think, I, and I think it was based on a book. book. Yeah. 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 But I, I think that helped me, actually, because I think that if I loved that original movie or if I really understood every corner of the original text, right. then maybe I would come in a little bit more resistant to Solaris. Right. I'm a big fan of Soderbergh, but this one was made in 2002, I want to say, and yep, uh, I hadn't seen it probably in 10 years since I watched it for this. And uh, I remember liking it. And when I rewatched it for the podcast, yeah. I really like it. Like, I was surprised. I remember thinking at the time it came out, it was a good meditative sort of thinker piece sci-fi, and people don't make enough of those. It's right. sort of good for them. But that was about the the end of my praise yeah upon revisiting it for a movie that's 98 minutes <laughs> they pack a lot of content and it is ambitious like the other one of these movies but uh even the most confusing corner of the screenplay i can justify i, I can make sense of uh in a lot of ways i think it is the most successful at achieving its goal of the movies that we hear. This is, wants you to be, you know, it's a contemplative sci-fi piece with a very strong undercurrent of romance to it. Yep. But they did not forget the mystery and, to me, the horror. I think that there's actually some real fright to this movie and that that helps it too. But uh, upon doing some research, looking into it, and reading some reviews of the period, okay. most people seem to be pretty unkind yep. to this movie. And um, maybe it's just because uh, I, I went revisiting it with lower expectations, but I have to say, I was really impressed by Solaris. And uh, at the time, like I said, people were like, well, George Clooney's not just a leading man. He can actually kind of act. And uh, he could. He could. Yeah. So um, I am largely positive on Solaris, but I would love to hear what you have to say. Well, I remember, this was one of the ones that I had not seen in its entirety. I'd seen bits because back in my projectionist days, mm -hmm. I remember, you know, 
but I, I did most of my shifts at Sandra Cinemas here in Saskatoon. So you're running seven cinemas, and so you kind of have to go bounce around. Yeah, exactly. You stagger the start times every five minutes, and so you, once they're all running, I might go over and check, make sure that you know the edges on the screen are looking good, everything's in focus. And so I'd seen bits, but I made a point of not watching it because I wanted to get the experience. Actually, watch it, but then I just never ended up doing it. I watched this one and Sphere were the first two I watched getting ready for this and like, huh, this is interesting. We have two psychologists like, yeah. <laughs> like let's send Dustin Hoffman in, into deep water area. He's the psychologist. Now we got George Clooney being sent into space. We need him to, he's been figure out why these people are getting space madness. Yeah, they're not, you know, they're not calling back. We don't know what's going on out there. We need you to, to save it. And like, what a good, like Viola Davis before anyone really knew who she was. She's so good in it too. Yeah. Uh, and, and I watched some. There wasn't many extras on the on the the copy I watched, but it was kind of funny to watch it. James Cameron was the producer on it, and he was trying to talk about Natasha Mahelhorn about how I was like, oh, I think you know some people won't really know who she was. I'm like, ah, oh, she was Braveheart. She, she was in Truman Show by this point. Yeah. Like, what the Braveheart? Anyone remember that obscure motion picture that won best picture? Best picture? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Jeremy Davies is kind of always Jeremy Davies for me. He, he kind of turned me off a little bit. Um, but no, I, I, I love the score. Um, I wrote down my name's Cliff Martinez. I'm like, who's this guy? You know, they yeah. just sort of work with him often. I can't remember, did he do Traffic years later? No. So I made a, that got me interested. It's a slow burn, right? Yeah. It's not a shoot him up. Again, it was a nice reminder of sci-fi. It doesn't necessarily mean yeah. Star Trek or Star Wars all the time. It, it's a different type of mood. Uh, it's interesting you talking about Jeremy Davies sort of being distracting. That was one of the things that I was 100% on board with you until we learned the twist of the character. Right. Once we understood who that character was and where he was coming from, all of a sudden his constant state of confusion and fear yeah. made sense, right? The reason that he was not able to explain to George Clooney what, what happened is that he had no idea yeah. <laughs> what was happening. And if he told George Clooney what happened, George Clooney would very likely send him out of an airlock, right? right? So I would get on board with that decision if I wasn't such a big Lost fan and right. knowing that he essentially does the exact same. But then he's playing a dude whose brain is being affected by the yeah. time. And you got to be careful how you cast Jeremy Davies. I yeah. agree. And he does have this weird twitchy energy that he does. But yeah. I think that line that he has, uh, I could tell you what's going on, but I don't think that would really tell you what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Should have been the fucking tagline for, the, for movie. the movie. The other movie that I ended up thinking about uh, while I was watching this was Eternal Sunshine of, of the, the Spotless, Spotless Mind. Right. Uh, George Clooney, who's the psychiatrist, sent to the planet Solaris where there's a spaceship in orbit, but the crew has gone mad, and the rescue crew that came to get them has been fended off by them. He was specifically requested by name to come and talk to him uh, by the captain of the of the yeah. expedition. So George Clooney shows up and everyone's super mysterious. There's blood places, clearly there's been some violence. Jeremy Davis is the sputtering idiot who's not, he, he tells him things, but everything he says adds to his confusion. Viola Davis will only talk to him through a the closed door. door. <laughs> and they said, until shit starts happening to you, there is no point in us having this conversation. <laughs> yeah. And then shit starts happening. Once shit starts happening to you, we will sit down, we will have a talk. But you're not going to believe a fucking word that I say until <laughs> that happens, right? Yeah. And for me, that's really strong. Because as a skeptical-minded person, that's kind of what I need. What's it going to take for Larry to believe in a ghost? 
Larry turns a corner and sees a fucking ghost. <laughs> All right, checkmate, you win, ghosts exist, right? So his wife, played by Natasha McElhorn, who had committed suicide, we learned through a series of flashbacks, yep. he wakes up and she is next to him. And she seems to be as confused as he. Yeah. What is going on? Is Solaris studying us? Is Solaris fending us off? Um, is he, this good for George Clooney? Is it bad for George Clooney? Reliving this terrible wound, this thing, right? Like, is it Solaris doing him a favor? Or is it tormenting him? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know it in credits. <laughs> right? <laughs> yep. But it's interesting and chilling at times that George Clooney walking down a corridor and then you see from the top screen there's a little kid all of a sudden in the great system right above him. What the fuck is this little kid doing in this spaceship orbiting in the ass end of nowhere, right? Yeah. Just the presence of a child on board is instantly frightening because he has no business. It automatically <laughs> makes you think of like Kubrick. It just does. What yeah. do you mean? Yeah. It's like, yeah. Um, and the other thing, we started this podcast talking about James Cameron and Avatar. And for me, Avatar is the exact thing that James Cameron shouldn't be doing. And Solaris is the exact thing that he should. He's got the money and the means to collect some interesting sci-fi titles and get the rights. He really liked Solaris. Yeah. Wasn't sure if he could crack that nut. But then he got Soderbergh interested and said, well, shit, you're an amazing filmmaker. So here's a bunch of money. Here's the rights to Solaris. Yeah. Go make your fucking movie. This is the James Cameron that I want to see. Because clearly James Cameron left to his own devices is kind of gone down an uninspiring George Lucas kind of way. Right. But if he can produce solid sci-fi like Solaris, <laughs> yep, <laughs> please, 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 please. Um, yeah, there's a series, just, just the, the way that the revelations are, are penned out, right? Yeah. When we first see what the problem is, a ghost shows up to George Clooney. He's a shrink, he's a skeptic, he can't handle it. He can't handle it to the degree that he puts her in a ship and sends her off into the vacuum of space because he wants to deny her very existence. Like, I think that's a horrible but incredibly human response. Well, and then the fact that, you know... She another, finds out about it. Well, yeah, another version of her Shows comes up. along and you, now you've got no choice but... Yeah, you he tries to hide it. Viola yeah. Davis's character kind of spills the beans to... Yeah. But it's like, now you gotta, you're confronted with the fact of like, oh, sorry, my copy of my dead wife, I've already killed one version of you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Calhoun slowly realizes, okay, I'm not this girl. I'm this yeah. memory of this girl that you have. Everything I know about myself, I'm getting from you, but I am not real. And she wants to die. She wants to be let go. And what's George Clooney's character going to say to that? Yeah. No. Yeah. I fucked up and I, I let you it's kill a chance yourself. to get her to make this up is mistake. my redemption yeah this is for a 19 minute sci-fi movie there's a lot of fucking layers here yeah does it have the scale and spectacle of some of the other movies that we've seen no the special effects are basically limited to the sort of beautiful almost hallucinogenic glow of Solaris itself yeah. and the spaceship that's orbiting it. And obviously they had to spend some money on the sets and everything like that, but it's not about explosions. No. It's not even about fear. And then you hold that up to something like Avatar, which is really long, and you could have told that same story in an hour and a half. Absolutely. 
I think that I would have liked Avatar more if it was 98 minutes, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. Makes sense. So I think at the end of the day, I'm saying that I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of Solaris. Like when I originally came to do this list, I was like, oh. Was it kind of tossed in? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's a, a science fiction movie made by a director that I love. So let's put it into the pool. But I surprised myself at how high it's going to end up ranking. Right. Um, and like I said, we, we won't turn it all the way around to the Jeremy Davis thing. This is just one of the twists of the movie. So if I'm spoiling it for you, I apologize. But I do think you should watch it. But I love this idea for a character. Everybody's had a visitor come to them. Viola Davis's child has been returning to her. And she's been dealing with it the same way George Clooney did. By killing it over and over and over again. And that is wearing on her. Basically, she's killing her own kid over and over again. We're told that Jeremy Davis says he was visited by his brother, but it's the one visitor that we don't see. It's just an interesting thing, but there's enough going on you don't really think about it. And what he, he tells the story is like, all of a sudden, I exist. I'm in this room, and I'm trying to figure out what I'm doing here. And then this man comes attacking me, and I have to defend myself, so I kill this man. And then I realize that the man I killed was me. And that everything that I am was built out of his memories. And he's not going to have any more memories, because I just killed Kill him. him. So his entire world is just a guy in orbit of Solaris. Yeah, and there's he's no, not going to want to go anywhere. There's he's, nowhere. What, for what's going to happen to him once they go? Like, yeah. he, there's nowhere for him to go. There's nowhere for him to grow. Like he doesn't know. He has no place in the universe. Yeah. Like, and I don't there's know all how these, con- these connections too. Like I didn't know how, how on purpose you did it, <laughs> because you get the sense like obviously his brother is a twin, mm-hmm. has to be a twin you to, would to, or, or yeah. to make the flip, and then you've got. In Avatar, it was his twin brother that died, died, and now he comes in, and now we've got psychologists in space, yeah. and now we got George Clooney's character with visited by the ghost of his dead wife, and we'll get to Inception, yeah. and the, the ghost of his dead wife who killed herself. Like each movie, kind of has some kind of thematic connection, yeah. connection to the other one you pick. So I was like, how on purpose did he do this? No, this is I, pretty brilliant. I, I honestly like. When I was building the list, I was going by directors that I liked in sci-fi. Honestly, I didn't think super, super deeply about it. This is an ongoing theme. That we, this, we didn't <laughs> even know what was happening. You're giving me more credit than I deserve, <laughs> sadly. Um, please, please, please watch Solaris, because I think it's a movie that people missed. And um, I liked it when I first saw it, but upon revisiting it, I liked it a lot. Prometheus, are you seeing this? Whatever that probe is picking up, it's reading life form. What do you mean a life form? Oh, the head. Changing. Changing into what? It's moving. These things moving. What is that? There's a ship. They're leaving. To go where? Earth. We were so wrong. Take us home! If you don't stop it, they won't get you home to go back to. Why is that door open? Cut it off! Cut it off! 
the more controversial decisions that I've ever made in the podcast was in an early sci-fi episode. I ranked the Ridley Scott Alien number two on the list. I gave Philip Kaufman's Invasion of the Body Snatchers number one over Alien, and I heard a lot of shit about that. <laughs> People did not agree with that assessment. <laughs> and here's the thing, I love Alien. I think everybody right. loves Alien. Like, it's, it is the sci-fi horror movie, and I don't think it will ever be beat. beat. It's, like, it's like the space horror movie Jaws. You just, you're not going to try to remake Jaws. It would be a foolish thing to do. Right? Yeah. Um, and he had largely distanced himself from Ridley Scott. I mean, he largely just distanced himself from the Alien franchise because with each perpetual sequel, things got a little bit crazier. And by this time, we were in the world of Aliens versus Predator, Predator. which was a total <laughs> schmozzle, right? Yeah. So when it's the announcement is made, Ridley Scott's making a prequel to Alien. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, the people are split on Damon Lindelof. You're talking about Lost in the previous. Yeah, movie. exactly. I wrote um, that down. He was on this one. I, I'm a defender of Lost. I think that the journey is worth it. Not everything is answered, but not all of the problems with the with the show was the show's fault. Actors quit. Writer strikes. Yeah. It's an imperfect thing. If you if you if you you're basically making a movie over the period of six years, you're gonna weather some some storms. But the fact that Lindelof was on board didn't hurt me. I agree that he's a writer who can get lost in Act 1. He's much better at the setup than the payoff. Right. But I don't think he sucks as a writer. The other screenwriter, this was his first gig, if you can believe that. He started spitballing with, with Ridley Scott. And Ridley Scott said, give me a draft. And he was like, holy fucking shit! <laughs> <laughs> so, I'll admit, when I first saw Prometheus... Initially, yeah, disappointed. Right, because your expectations were high. My expectations were through the roof. Yeah, I wanted Alien, right? So I decided, well, I need to go at this again because honestly, I sat with my friend Paxton. Yeah, came back to my house and we yelled at each other for like ninety minutes about like how angry we were about that movie, <laughs> right? I revisited it. There's a three-hour, three-hour documentary promising we will give you some answers. They don't. <laughs> they, they, give us, they give us answers on how they made the movie, but not what the master plan was, not what the movie was about, not what you know what the egg being cracked was, like what we were supposed to make a meal out of from this movie. I've said it before about Ridley Scott, it's all script. You can count on him bringing an able cast, and you can count on the production values being there for you. And the reason my esteem of, of this movie has raised some from watching that huge documentary is that there's not as much CGI in this movie as you would think. Right. A lot of those sets and a lot of those environments that I assumed were, they were just in a green room because that's how shit's done now. They built. They built a vast tunnel network. They built a huge statue of an alien head. They built environments for these actors to immerse themselves in. Awesome. That's how they did it in the 70s because they had no other way of doing it. Right. But it worked because the actors are immersed in the environment. We get to it. It falls on the script. Where are likable characters? Where, what are the, like, what is our journey as an audience? If not for the character, what are we to take out of this? When we walk out of Prometheus, how are we even supposed to feel? If, if, if you were to go watch that movie only to get some answers about the creation of the alien, 
Maybe. But that's not a good enough reason for the story to exist. Like You can't deliver a movie based on that. You yeah. have to find some kind of character arc within that. Yeah. To, to, at least for me, to interest me, and and I guess Numi Rapace was the was the one that you know I kind of was able to latch on to her. We're allowed to like yeah. Numi. We're allowed to like Numi, yeah. and that and that's kind of that's kind of it, kinda it <laughs> really. That is it. Idris Elba, I guess. Yeah, we can yeah, the, the captain of the ship, I guess. And so to, like I like Idris Elba. I think yeah. he's a good actor. I think that uh, here I am just dropping the the, the actor names because I don't know the movies well enough. That's good. To, to he's the captain. He's basically the pilot of the of yeah. the ship that takes them to this. Yeah. Well, here plot. And Numi Rapace and her husband, boyfriend, husband? Certainly partner. Partner. They have discovered through a series of ancient ruins all over the world that there's a hieroglyph that matches. That maybe there was something from the stars that ancient people on Earth worshipped across the globe. And that it seems to be pointing them towards a constellation. So... Wayland in, uh, Institute, mm-hmm. or kind of whatever that thing is called, uh, ship a bunch of workers and scientists across the galaxy to go find our origin. So many science fiction movies are about this. We want to meet our maker and have a conversation with them. And none of them have the guts to pull the trigger on it. Yeah. It's not Star Trek, not like, not like they'll, they'll get us right to the edge where we're going to meet our maker and either, oh, it's not our maker, or oh, he's not going to offer any answers, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> that exact thing plays out here. It's all set up, zero payoff. So yeah, we get to this ancient ruins of what they're calling these engineers, and in order to retrofit the engineer design, which is 100% Ridley, he wanted them to be the big humanoid creatures. The elephant shell that we saw in that alien ruin from the first movie was actually a spacesuit. They weren't these big elephantine creatures, which I've been imagining since the early 80s, right? <laughs> right there, that's a retrofit. And even in the documentary, the people admit that was Ridley's idea, and most of the people were not on board until they actually saw the engineer on set. Right, and then they thought, oh... There's oh, something. so they're just big people? That's lame, Ridley, <laughs> right? Right. Why establish this huge elephant suit, you know? like, Or it would be a different alien because it came out of a different creature. There were so many things, but Ridley Scott's not interested in making an alien movie, and I think that was the problem. Hmm. He was interested in making this origin movie, this where we want to find where we came from, and maybe we will. And the problem is, that scene happens. We finally get to the point where we find a living engineer and Wayland, and we can get into Guy mm-hmm. Pierce and playing that card later. Yeah. Uh, he goes to talk to his creator and say, you know, you made us why? You're threatening to get rid of us why? Do you have the key to immortality? What's that conversation gonna be? And what that conversation is, is I'm gonna rip off the head of your robot yeah. and smash your head in with a helmet. So disappointing. <laughs> Well, and even watching so disappointing. Watching some of the extras on it too. Even in the finished film, they cut out the few lines of text that they even did give the engineer in the first place. Yeah. It's just now the way it stands in the finished film is it's just a, you know, ripping off the head of Fastbender and a swift backhand to, to, Guy, to Pierce. Guy Pierce, and then hunt, trying to hunt down everybody else because, like, well, I wasn't happy with how you turned out, so <laughs> I'm kind of destroy you and the fact that he seemed to outrage that they're there like the fact that they've managed to get to a point where they could travel and find him seems to make him even more angry he is as much or more a threat than the aliens themselves yeah. it seems yeah. but we're never given that answer why yeah. 
We're never given guess, that answer. The one thing I guess I, I kind of hung my hat on going, okay, this, um, I guess maybe this is, you know, be careful of the questions that you, that if you, you don't ask. Because an it's like, you, you might not, you probably won't get the answer that you want. Mm-hmm. And, and that's obviously what happens in this film. It's like you, you have your heroes or you have, you know, you've, you've set up the stuff on this pedestal. Like, oh, if we can just figure this out, we'll have it. It's like, well, what if you don't get what you want? And that's definitely what happens across the board to the people in this one to the point where, you know, in true kind of tip of the hat to alien fashion is, you know, one person gets out of there. <laughs> Everyone else is dead. Well, you know, I guess one person in the head of a robot. Yeah. Scott, and Fassbender is going to be in the, in the new one. In the new one. Playing two different Davids or whatever. Yeah. Uh, one's David and one's got a different name, a newer version of the same thing. So he's playing double duty in the new one, apparently. Well, I mean, they definitely seem to have learned from their mistakes. Just from seeing the trailer to this new Alien movie, Alien Covenant, we're bringing you the monsters, we're bringing you the scares. Clearly, that's going to be a horror movie. Like, it almost seems like Ridley Scott admitting that Prometheus was a misstep. (laughs) I haven't seen that movie, I shouldn't speak to it. But here's my evidence as to why Prometheus utterly fails. Two very, very talented actors. Guy Pearce, Charlie Stone. Terrible in this movie. They have no characters. Charlize Theron's character is utterly unlikable, and worse than that, she doesn't make any sense. Like, I don't understand why she needs to be this much of a bitch to everybody. I don't understand if she's such a hard ass, why she's so easily manipulated. Like, mm-hmm. uh, from the second she opens her mouth, she's just terrible to everyone. And we're never given a reason why or a redemption. That's her whole arc. I am terrible to people. I look down. Yeah, on yeah, and I guess the only thing I can think of is just it, it, we don't get any insight. And you know, part of the reveal later is that it's Wayland's her dad. Yeah, Wayland's her dad. It's like so. Is he the reason the way she is? Well, there might be deleted scenes because then we go to Guy Pierce. Why is Guy Pierce playing that role? Even if like I'd heard that they did like uh, some shots that were supposed to be in the past where a younger Wayland was doing like a TED talk type of thing. Yeah. Fine, if you wanted a younger film, but. The special effects are so good everywhere else in the movie. The old age makeup looked not, not, not great, great on, on, on Blu-ray, but I have to say, in the theater, it looked hilarious. It looked <laughs> like like not credible. Right. <laughs> and because we only see Guy Pierce as this old man in this version of the movie now, pretty much, the question just has to be why. Mm-hmm. Not even why narratively is he there, because he shows up for that scene where he confronts the engineer and then gets killed. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. But why Guy Pierce? Like, that seems like an obviously, like, even if you'd hired Guy Pierce and the script changed, we'd say, sorry, Guy, we're going to let you out of your conch. <laughs> yeah. They tried this similar thing happened on The Green Mile, the Frank Darabont Stephen yeah. King movie. Yeah. They aged Tom Hanks so that he could do the bookends. And even though they got the top people in the world, just didn't look right. Right. So they hired an old man to play old Tom Hanks. And it was for the better of the movie. And it's that kind of mistake that just seems so obvious. Like, you're, gonna, you're making this epic prequel to Alien that's going to have ridiculous expectation to it. There's no emotional payoff to your movie. <laughs> There's one likable character. And, uh, like, what, what happened? What happened, really? <laughs> <laughs> Even things like... 
Um, this is getting nitpicky. No, that's to pick fine. Up. That's what we're but, you know, they, they're outside. You know, they're, they're running for it. They've... Uh, the ship's captain and his two pilots, they kind of the do their suicide... Kamikaze, do the yeah. kamikaze suicide crash to take it down so it can't leave. And the engineer ship is crashing It's crashing, and now it's coming to the surface, and it's on its side. It's this kind of circular, uncomplete circular ship thing, and it's on its edge, and it's rolling... And they're just running in a straight line. It's yes. like serpentine, guys. Yeah. If anything, like if Alan Arkin has not told, taught us anything, yes. run, it's like just run to the side and again out of the path of the thing that's going to. That is a production problem because I guarantee you, as much as there was practical effects everywhere, Naomi and Charlie's were running against a green screen. They had no yeah, fucking idea. idea what they're so running I'm from. not. This is not a performance thing. This is right. this is a, a bad execution. We needed to understand why they couldn't veer. Several feet to the left or right to avoid it. being crushed. Other than running in a straight line with the huge thing that's obviously following and in I've, that. I've heard defenders of the movie just say, oh, screw you guys, man. It's panic. They just panicked and they started running. And that's real. <laughs> is it? <laughs> if your life is at stake and the difference is six feet to the left or six feet to the right... No, no. Step to the side. Uh, the only good news is that Charlize Theron gets crushed. Yes. Right? It's just like, oh, thank God. <laughs> I'm not going to hear anything more from her. I, I, I hated that scene between her and Idris Elba where he just accuses her of being a robot. Yeah. And she, her way to prove to him that she's not a robot it's is to Come to my room in 20 sex. minutes. Yeah, we'll have sex and then you'll, that'll be proof to you that I'm not a cold fish. Like, she just got manipulated <laughs> into, like, servicing yeah. Idris Elba. <sighs> Idris Elba, a good actor, but he's basically, well, what's my interpretation of this character? Let's give him a southern accent. <laughs> but who knows? And maybe someone directed him to do that. I, you know, we don't know, but... Uh, uh, Rafe Spall is in there. Yeah. Playing one of the, uh, there were some good suspenseful moments in terms of, you know, creatures coming out of stuff and like, oh God, that's now going to turn Rafe Spall into some, yeah. some kind of proto alien thing that can kick butt and they got no choice but to burn them and drive them it was a scary scene but I didn't find it credible like these two guys who are stuck in the ruins of this alien temple or whatever while the storm rages and then this serpentine thing swims up to them and presents itself opens its head like a cobra and the whole time he's like hey little buddy and that was another scene too and I don't know why no. they, they were they, both it terrified was, it was part of the ones in the extras that they cut they yeah. actually when everyone was in the room they came across it oh. earlier yeah. as a group and like oh interesting and so they, they knew that there was stuff in there and he's this you know biologist yeah. kind of guy which is, would help explain his interest more than the others and why he wouldn't but it's like, yeah, come on, guys. you got to know this. They established them earlier before the creature presents itself to them. They're both terrified there. They're like, right. what are we doing here? This is nuts, right? <laughs> and then a creature shows up and like... Come here, nobody. It's a calming, it's a calming influence on them. Hey, look, company. <laughs> you know? It's just not credible. And I think that everybody working on it should have probably known that. Uh, I remember also reading something about, too, that Lindelof... Said to Ridley Scott at one point, it's like, oh, well, if we do this with Whalen Enter- Enterprises, um, this, this doesn't jive with like some of the backstory that was created in like Alien versus Predator. And he was like, I don't Whatever. care. That doesn't exist to me. Like, he basically just said, yeah, that's, 
those are made, whatever, fine. They people enjoy them. The the idea is like, but no. No. As far as I'm concerned, there's alien, there's aliens, and the rest is a Donnie Darko tangent universe that you can take or leave, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but I guess maybe part. I guess to enjoy this movie more, maybe someone who was just watching it as a movie and not as a prequel to these other two amazing films it might be more enjoyable if you I did carried not. an awful lot of baggage into yeah. this movie and I will admit that yeah. and I've been saying some bad things so allow me to just say a couple of good things because <laughs> I know we've been going on about it but that's the thing about Prometheus I don't think it's good but I end up talking about it and <laughs> like, there's a lot of really interesting ideas in it and there's a scene in this movie that is absolutely horrifying that is just like uh, a window into how this could have been a much more terrifying mm -hmm. movie. The Numi Replace character we find out is, is barren. She can't have kids. Yeah. This is a plot point that we ended up. Uh, and then she's subsequently in, infected with this alien life form. Because her partner, her has, partner been infected, has been infected and they've and had sex life. and now she's pregnant and then. She goes into this uh, operating machine. Yeah, that C-section sequence is amazing. Yeah, and uh, it's not even designed for, for women. That's the first hint that Wayland's on board, I think. They, uh, the suite that Charlize Theron had, this, this big med unit in it, they made a point of showing this to yeah. it. They make it not touch it. She realizes she has the alien, and she runs for that thing, and she asks for a cesarean section. They said, this unit's designed for men. So she has to program it to remove a foreign body yeah, from her surgery, yeah. <laughs> And... We see the surgery go down. We see this alien pull from her while she's conscious. In, the, in, in a closed tube. <laughs> and then she's trapped in this room with this writhing thing that is birthed out of her. And that sequence yeah. is fucking amazing. Yeah. Like, it's just like... It's jaw-droppingly good. That was an incredible scene. And there's an example, too, of a character who doesn't have a military... Because like, she's a scientist. She's no. there because she's a scientist. So it's like... There's a fright level of like, oh my god, like, I'm not equipped to, to from a to character this level. Like all she wants would be to have a child, right? Yeah. And then this terrible irony that she is impregnated, and the first thing she does upon finding out that she's pregnant, yeah, <laughs> is have this thing cut the fuck out of. And that's another great change. Like, I, I I enjoyed this movie enough to kind of go in and watch some of the extras, right? And with it, that was an, a late reshoot. The night before scene with her and the other scientist, her her partner, was a it's a way harsher scene where like he's almost like they're fighting. Yeah, and it's almost becomes a sexual assault, right? Like, and as opposed to, and then we don't get any of the information about her being barren. That was a change they did in a rewrite. Like right. it was a, a a good change. That right. Is watching that scene after that, I'm like this is horrible. Um, and again, I just wanted more characters to like her husband or her partner or whatever. I like him for a while, but he's such a dick to the robot character, and you're thinking, yeah. why are you such a dick to the robot character? And then the robot character poisons him, and you're like, oh well, well I guess it was good that you were being a dick to that robot. Yeah, because now he's taking it out on you. Yeah, this robot who some kind of somehow does have that's feelings. Another shoe that's not dropped, by the way. Yeah. Did Waylon tell him to infect them? Did he do that personally? Right. Uh, and at the end of this, David and the Numi Repace character, seem, Shaw, they seem to be buddy-buddy. And he murdered her husband and Almost killed to, her to as a result, her. whether he meant to or not. Yeah. So the fact that the two of them are riding off into this uncertain future together is not exactly a happy ending. No. Uh, it's a troubling, troubling movie. <laughs> We're about 20 minutes into the review, so... Uh, <laughs> 
I don't know what more I can say. It's I don't think it's successful, but I think there's enough interesting in it that you wanna you could probably take a look at it. But as a sequel or a prequel to Alien, I'm disappointed. Right. Once I think that's this, the difference, yeah. Once this movie came out, because there was talk of Ridley Scott doing the sequel to Blade Runner, I was like, oh my god, oh my god. And then I watched Prometheus, and I immediately went, don't do it, Ridley. Please do not direct a sequel to Blade Runner. That's what, that's what this movie accomplished. Not exactly. We create the world of the dream. We bring the subject into that dream, and they fill it with their secrets. Then you break in and steal it. Well, it's not strictly speaking legal. It's called Inception. I'm ready. I think I found a way home. And this last job, that's how I get there. Dreams feel real while we're in them. It's only when we wake up that we realize something is actually strange. This is your responsibility. We are not prepared for this. Dreams collapsing. Control. I'm always on board for the next Christopher Nolan movie, but I always feel like everybody likes Christopher Nolan way more than I do. <laughs> and uh, my regular contributor and current ranking review champion, Lee Beckman, mentioned that, and I agree with him, that there's a strange Thing when happened to rewatch these movies, these Christopher Nolan movies. I really, really like them, but I, I never really feel compelled like I need to go watch The Prestige again. I never really, really feel compelled like I need to revisit. I was like, eh, that was solid. Good movie. Next. <laughs> right? I don't know. Like, uh, and, and I don't know what it is. It, right. Maybe it's me, but that's it. So Inception comes out and everyone loses their mind over it. It's an amazing movie. And conceptually it is. But for me, what is, makes Inception successful is strangely not the concept of the movie. Mm -hmm. It's the execution of it. It's the world building in it. I love the scenes where the Ellen Page character is being taught to do the architecture, to do the architecture of the dream. I love like finding out the, the rules. When the brain is uh, attacking the invading force, it manifests itself within right. the vision as attacking marauding people. Yeah. Chaos. I think that was an interesting concept. I like the way they played with the layers of time. Each layer of the dream Makes stretches time yeah. slower. All of these concepts, very, very, very strong. But at the end of the day with Inception, I want to walk away thinking that was a visually amazing movie. But my mind wasn't blown. Yeah? And I think, much like Cloud Atlas, the intention was to leave me with my mind blown. Mm -hmm. um, I endorse Inception. Check the shit out. Amazing cast, amazing spacescapes, and amazing dreamscapes. But at the end of the day, it does turn into a video game for me. By the time we get to the third act, and we're in these snowy mountaintops, and yeah. we're, we're penetrating facilities, it, it, it turns into your classic sort of video game construct. 
uh, yeah, the, the concept is that they're placing an idea into the dream mind uh, of a sleeping subject. Yeah. So that, you know, they can manipulate the world to their wants without, you know, yeah. force of arms necessarily. They're still basically psychological terrorists when it comes down to it. Yeah. But uh, we haven't necessarily seen this. It's a matrixy sort of dreamscape kind of world. And I like the world and I like the visuals of the world, but I want to feel more. Yeah, you kind of touched on one of the things <clears throat> that is kind of a, a critique, a, you know, a negative critique for me, is that if you know, Ellen Page's character is this Cracker Jack architect, builder of these dream worlds and whatnot, why on, especially when you know, you know, and it's been talked about that you're going to be sedated, so being shot in the dream won't wake you up. Yeah. Why would you create a dream level of a military compound where people are going to have guns and shit? Mm-hmm. Like why? <laughs> like that just that just maybe like uh, other than like oh it'd be cool to have you know we're gonna have a shootout it's yeah. gonna be like but you would never build that as a place to go you would you not try to make it as yeah yeah yeah. I think that uh, another thing that would have made it more interesting for me is that if we knew the dreamer more. The Killian Murphy character. Yeah, kind of yeah. Another movie that this has echoes of, which is not a good movie, but I, I think accomplishes the dream world in a better way, is called The Cell. Mm. Uh, J-Lo is injected into the brain of a, of a serial yeah, killer. Vincent and D'Onofrio. Vincent D'Onofrio. Yeah. And the landscapes in the, inside his brain are fucking dark <laughs> and crazy yeah. and creative. But we know that this guy is insane, that he spent all these years kidnapping women and yeah. that he's been abused. So all of the imagery that we see within the dream is reflected of this, this poison mind. Right. We don't know Killian Murphy's character. We know he's got some daddy issues, but yeah. they basically want his dad's dying and they want him to sell off his dad's business after his dad's gone, basically, so that this, the man who hired them can have more financial success and continue to close his fist over the world or yeah. whatever. Ken Watanabe. Yeah. Uh, and that's but, what they do. It's like, how are we supposed to feel about this when they yeah. actually pull it off? Is well, this a good thing? These are bad guys. That's yeah. what I was going to say. Yeah. We're cheering for uh, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio because... We want him to get back to his kids. Yeah, we want him to get back to his kids and he loved his wife and he's, he's good. But he's a gun for hire. In a lot of ways, like, like he might as well be doing a political assassination or something like this. He's, mm-hmm. he's doing evil for money. And he is our protagonist. <laughs> um, yeah. It, you can't fight like the uh, just the concept of the movie of exploring someone's dream and it's and inserting an idea as being a really cool concept for sci-fi, but like I say, in this age of movies like The Cell and like Doctor Strange, where like there's always a reality to these dreams in some stretch. I mean, I know like a train drives through downtown Manhattan, but yeah. it's still downtown Manhattan. You know, there right. there there's maybe this Bond base in, in this mountain in the Alps, but it's still a mountain in the Alps. When you're dealing with someone's dreamscape, everything's on the table. It seems to me like you don't even have to be limited even by reality. <laughs> no, it's a really good point. Um, and, and it seems greedy to want more from a movie that's this ambitious, but I can't. I kind of do. Uh, yeah, and, and I love. There's a whole bunch of reasons why I love Christopher Nolan, not just because I think he makes interesting films. I I've adopted this approach when I've directed plays. I always try, I call it the Christopher Nolan approach in terms right. of his ensemble. I always have a couple of people who I did the last project with right. 
in the play that I'm doing. And I always try to have at least one, if not more, people who I've never worked with on that particular project. So there's always this mix of like old and, old and new, and you're kind of you know spreading the gospel, trying to find like this is the way I work. And so when you end up working with that person again, whether it's on the very next one or if it's a couple of plays down the road, you're starting to develop a shorthand. You know how each other works, and you kind of have these. It's the closest thing to a rep company ensemble you're ever going to get right. in movies. I think you know you used to have a, an old studio system where you kind of had a stable of people who you knew you could go to. Yeah, you're under contract for yeah. such and such pictures, so. But I just find it super fascinating that he ends up having these people where he, you know, Michael Caine's and everything. Yeah. Well, um, and I, I like I like that too. Like Wes Anderson seems to have a stable of actors that he'll come yes. back to, and like, yeah. and that's cool as long as you're casting the right people for the part. Yeah. There's the, also the Joe Dantes of the world who will go out of their way to put their buddy in a movie, even if they're buddy not ready not for the part. Right for it. It. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think for me too, like I like DiCaprio, but I've never really loved him in in stuff. Like I, I liked him just fine in it. The moment when he's recounting the story when when his wife jumps yeah that actually like that was his best moment mm -hmm. in that whole movie like well that's there was something about his reaction to it I'm like that's that was I bought that part of the story is that the, he and his wife were like dream explorers or whatever they were sort of getting into this tech which he would end up eventually using to, to view this inception but they ended up being trapped in a dream world for like years and or at least what felt like, like years. Felt like years, but them. it was and uh, she couldn't handle being unplugged from the dream so much so that she believed that the real world was the dream, and that if she killed herself, it would bring her back. Right, because that was what he had to plant in her brain in the dream to lay their head down on the tracks and get hit by the train to come back to reality. Yeah, and now it's been planted in her head that he's incepted her, and yeah. nothing he can say will convince her otherwise. Yeah. and that made more sense upon second viewing. The first viewing, I I, I actually kind of missed some of that. Right, I thought like the fact that she went out of the way to stage the fact that he had murdered her <laughs> seemed like a little bit too far. Like, wouldn't it be if you're wrong about this girl? <laughs> you're really wrong. You're really <laughs> wrong about this. Now, not only are you dead, but you've sent your innocent husband to jail for a long time but you're right because I, and I missed that on the first pass right. that idea had been burned into her brain that this world is what we make it and there's nothing that we can do to hurt ourselves like this yeah. is our world we're just going to wake up mm -hmm. yeah. and uh, she believes it to the very end and that is that's heartbreaking <laughs> yeah. it's heartbreaking and that, that emotional point in the movie really works the other sort of action stuff in it like Joseph Gordon-Levitt has a really cool sequence Yeah, he's got a zero-G hallway fight and he's got a, like this whole series of things. He's got to tie a bunch of people together, get them into this elevator yeah, set. the drop happens. There. Yeah. Set some charges that will explode and somehow make gravity work for a few seconds. And uh, uh, that was the one layer of time where I really didn't feel, no matter how they edited it, he just did not have enough time <laughs> to accomplish to all everything. that he had to do. Like, there was just no way. I mean, I went with it. Yeah. Like, I, I let it go. But it was like, you guys are cutting some serious corners. <laughs> that, that, that van is in super slow-mo coming off that bridge. Yeah. <laughs> and I, like, that's, I get it. That's why there's zero G. Like, yeah. the, 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 the cars and... It's a really hard movie to explain. I'm just going to assume that people who are have listening to this should watch it. Because yeah. if I tried to break down the beat to the plot, we're going to be here for another 20 minutes. <laughs>
I like that it's an ambitious movie. It rubs shoulders with things like, you know, like Solaris and like The Matrix, but it is its own its own thing. It's a relatively original uh, Yeah. And sci-fi. another sci-fi one that's not out in space. No. You know, it's shooting. internal. It's internal. Yeah. You're talking about uh, DiCaprio, and largely I agree with you. For the first 30 years of his career, he had like bright spots. I mean, it's hard to deny what's yeah. eating Gilbert Grape. Yeah. It's hard to deny like this boy's life. Some of his young, young, yeah. young. He had basketball diaries. Yeah. I quite like him. He's strong, but yeah. for me, it just took him a little bit longer to grow into an adult. It took like until The Departed for me to take him seriously. Yeah. yeah. Like even the first two Scorsese ones, The Aviator and uh, Gangs of New York, I wasn't buying it. He didn't seem tough to me in Gangs of New York. And he just seemed like this 13-year-old boy, no matter what age he was supposed to be in The Aviator to me. At some point, the worm turned for me, and he finally became an adult, and I could see him. And like I say, I think it was around The Departed. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, And and I liked him here, but I think I'll agree with you that I'm not sure I understand why DiCaprio is the Hollywood star these days. I think the years of him being like a team beat heartthrob are well behind him. And I think he has established that he's a good actor. Yeah. That's the benefit of, you know, tying your boat to Martin Scorsese for 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, he's gotten better. And, and because, you know, he ends up always being attached to interesting films at this point because mm-hmm. of, you know, he does have a bankability and he does good enough work. For sure. Like, if someone said, hey, do you want to be in a DiCaprio movie? I'd be I'd think, yeah, yeah. For sure. I'd do that. But I, if I was making a list of greatest living actors, I don't right. think he would be there. But if I was making a movie and I wanted a good box office opening... You could do a hell of a lot worse for a leading man. Yeah. I think after all of this talk about Inception and around Inception, what I come down to is that I think it's a good movie. I don't think it's a great movie. Most people seem to think it's a great movie. <laughs> it's like everyone's favorite movie. It's I, like, I think it's really good. I think it's really good. And I will watch the next Christopher Nolan movie. But that is very consistent as to how I feel about Christopher Nolan. I remember after watching, seeing this one finally, we were like visiting my mom and they came on the movie channel. Finally, finally saw it, and I do. I love that moment of cutting away at the very end with the top. Is he asleep? Is he a dream? Yeah. Does it matter? <clears throat> but then I remember watching then when Dark Knight Returns came out because he was oh. doing movies in between each one. I'm like, I wanted him to do it again. <laughs> I wanted Michael Caine to look over, mm-hmm. and I didn't want him to cut to the table. I didn't want to know if it really was Bruce Wayne. Right. Over the other, and I'm like, I felt like he chickened out. I think he got so much flack on the cutaway at the end of this one. That he's like, oh, I gotta show him. I gotta show him. And I was like, No, you couldn't. Just uh. Uh, don't get me started yeah. on the dark night. Right? <laughs> Please watch Inception. Like yeah. I said, I I, I I like the movie. Most people like it more than I do, but that's still an endorsement. Yeah, it's a great cast. I do like science fiction and I do have a great deal of respect for these directors. 
<laughs> and now that being said, it's funny that I give all the rope in the world to like all these like terrible low budget slasher movies. It's like, yeah, you can see a boom in that shot. Like, but... <laughs> that didn't make sense. They're in space. What the fuck are you talking about? Uh, but yeah, like I said. If you have hundreds of millions of dollars and you've been making movies since the late seventies or early eighties, I'm gonna I'm gonna judge you on a higher level. So uh, I'm. It's not just that I'm a snob. I'm not saying that I'm not a snob, <laughs> but it's not just that I'm a snob. So I'm very interested to hear uh, how are these ranking. What was your least favorite of these sci-fi director masterclass movies and why? Uh, I put Sphere. Right. I put Sphere as my last one. It. I, I just. I don't know. It did, ultimately, at the end of the day, it didn't do it for me. I didn't find the story interesting enough. Uh, I think the fact that it's the oldest one that we reviewed in terms of its date of release, and yet it's taken me this long to revisit, to revisit it. it, and only because it was on the list with the other five. Yeah. So I probably it, it was going to have to do some work to to. Yeah, it's not that I hated it, just but compared to the other five, it's like it was an easy choice for me on that one. Yeah. Actually, fair enough. Yeah. You're not going to hear a lot of pushback there. <laughs> <laughs> no. Do you want number five? Yeah, please bring it on down. Uh, I went Avatar. Mm-hmm. Avatar was five for me. Visually amazing, but I just the story is pretty cookie cutter. I thought it, that that terrain has been covered many times, and you know, bright shiny things only get you so far with me. It got him pretty far. What surprised me was that... And I will go see the sequels. It surprised me the repeat business for Avatar. In order for a movie to become like one of the highest grossing movies of all time, that means a lot of people saw it two or three times, right? Yeah. For me, like I eventually saw it once. I didn't go opening weekend. I saw it once and I got, yeah, that's visually spectacular. That's all. Yeah, and I hadn't seen it again in its yeah. entirety until this one so actually that's kind of a recurring thing with some of these ones it's like if I had seen it only once before I'd have never watched it again yeah. hmm that's kind of a, an indication I went to Solaris I think I wanted a bit more out of it having finally seen it right. but it's unique it's like a, it's that like I talked about it earlier the slow burn different type of sci-fi right. film that that I've actually enjoyed more than I thought I was going to once it started I had high expectations and then I started and I'm like I don't think I'm going to like this All right. <laughs> and then by the end I'm like oh no I kind of won back yeah. won me back towards the middle um, then I went Prometheus if I look at it on its own right if I try to look at it, yeah, if I put it in part of the franchise then it then it kind of it does all, yeah does all this other stuff but just in terms of watching it on its own standalone film and maybe because I haven't seen the other Alien movies for so long that I was able to go, you know, there's some good performances in it, despite other ones that drove me absolutely crazy. Fun fact, you know who wrote Alien 4, Resurrection? David Fincher. No, Fincher was on 3. Fincher directed 3. three. Joss Whedon wrote Alien. He did Resurrection. He wrote it. Hmm. Fun fact. <laughs> yeah, I know you're rubbing your neck yep. like, really? What the? Really? <laughs> So Prometheus fights its way to third place. Yep. Um, uh, then I put Inception. And I guess it's the only one I own. Right. Out of all these ones, not that I, I have a huge catalog anymore, but Inception. I like Christopher Nolan. And again, I think the It and Cloud Atlas are kind of these two big idea movies. And I, I'm a sucker for big idea. Yeah. And so I did Cloud Atlas too because that one I have 
gone back to a couple of times just because I'm like, man, this thing is so dense. Yeah. Not without its faults, but I love a movie that makes me work. Yeah. And, and Cloud and Atlas makes me work harder than Inception. So Cloud Atlas was my number one. And I didn't always know where I was with Cloud Atlas, but I was always engaged by it, right? I wasn't yeah. frustrated. I was just like, I was, I was working with the movie. It was like a conversation was happening, you know? So yeah. That's a pretty good list. We're, 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 we're pretty close. Like I said, I surprised myself with this list. Yeah. And I can hear the internet already just yelling, Bullshit! <laughs> Here we go. I agree with you. And I'm surprised, but it's true. Sphere goes to the bottom of the yeah. list. Because it's just uniformly bland. Yeah. And it shouldn't have been. The cast is good. The concept is strong. Like... It, it just isn't successful in anything it's trying to do. Like, that's unfortunate. And I do love Barry Levinson. Like, by all means, check out The Bay, this found footage horror movie he did. Hmm. Check out uh, Good Morning Vietnam. <laughs> check out Wag the Dog. And if I'm mistaken, he did Sleepers, which he did is Sleepers, which yeah. Great. This really fucked up Robin Williams one called Toys. Yeah. <laughs> it's just oh, absolutely insane. So uh, I, I hate throwing Levinson under the bus like this and putting. Well, it someone's got to be sixth. And honestly, when I sat down to do this group of movies, I thought Avatar was going to be at the bottom because I kind of got increasingly angry <laughs> about Avatar after I watched it. I walked out saying, "Yeah, I get it. It's pretty, you guys, but it is dumb as shit." And why is nobody noticing that it is dumb as shit? And the longer it went on, the more money it made, and the more it was just like, come on, you guys, this movie is stupid. And Larry was standing out in the corner of a sidewalk with a sign, Avatar is a weak story. And if it was just stupid, I could even get by that, because I like watching stupid movies. But it also borders on offensive at times. So congratulations for making fifth place. <laughs> All the way in fourth place, Prometheus. I, uh, Ridley, 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 you are so schizophrenic. <laughs> you, you will make movies that are amazing, and you will make movies that are utterly perplexing. And this one is sort of in the middle of those two. Like, right. there's great scenes where you can understand, yeah, same guy who made Alien made this movie. But Alien is amazing, and this is frustrating. Right. <laughs> so, uh... I remain cautiously optimistic about Alien Covenant on the strength of the trailers, although I also understand that trailers are designed to make to you make want to watch good. the movie. Yeah. And uh, honestly, I might be more excited about it if Scott wasn't directing at this point. Hmm. And that's, that's a hard thing to say. Well, at a certain point, they, I do think some of the franchises work better as I think Star Wars even shows an example, not that Lucas doesn't have to be not involved, but when the people move to a producer role and go, okay, I've created this thing, yeah. now you take it from here, they tend to take a step forward. Yeah. It's hard to say. Uh, this might hurt your feelings as well. No, it's all right. Third place, Cloud Atlas. And the only reason I think I've dropped to third place is it really took me three passes to decide if you whether or not I was giving it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Yeah. I think that if, I, if you're watching it three times, it's probably a thumbs up review. But if it takes you three times to get there, right. then it goes past being challenging and might be like a little bit difficult for some people. Yeah. So I'm saying it's a good movie. Check it out. But I'm also cautioning that it's it's not for everyone. <laughs> there will be some people who will go, "What the heck did I just watch?" Yeah. Or maybe even to the point, "Why did I just watch it?" 
Insanely, I am going to put Inception that surprised in second you? place. <laughs> um, I like Inception. I don't think it's amazing. I know a lot of people who just think that Inception is amazing. And once again, like I often do with Christopher Nolan, I think it's pretty good. You know, like, I think he's a pretty good filmmaker. <laughs> I will watch his next movie. You yeah. know, like if his worst movie is The Dark Knight Rises, I mean, it's still technically a well-made movie. Yes. You know. Like, yeah. Yeah. So be it. And then wow, Solaris, you guys. Number one. And I would have never guessed that when oh, I sat down. Oh shit! <laughs> when I sat down to rewatch this movie, it's like I figured Solaris is somewhere in the middle. Like that's that's just where my head was at. That was my memory of the movie. But there's so many fucking layers to this. It's psychologically deep. It's scary. I think the romantic story actually kind of works for the most part. I like how strange Natasha McElhorn is. I like that it's the first sort of... George Clooney is not just a leading man, but an actor movie. And uh, it just gave me the most to chew on out of all of these movies. Like, I was was broadsided by it. Which is interesting, too, because it's, if I'm not mistaken, the shortest... It is. Of all of them, too. It's, it, it gets in, it does its job, and then it gets out. That said, I completely realized that there's a lot of people out there who just... Will not like out, it. Like, that movie is boring and pointless, Larry. <laughs> it's like, well, if you think that movie's boring and pointless, I apologize. But I would also encourage you to not watch the four-hour and 15-minute, you know, Russian <laughs> yeah. version. That's a bit excessive. To, to, like, again, I'd have to rewatch the movie, but to my mind, I do feel like this movie accomplishes everything that that movie did in a fraction of the time. Yeah. And, uh, like I said, it's, it's heady sci-fi produced by James Cameron, who I didn't think was capable of producing heady sci-fi <laughs> anymore. Well, he hired a good director. He got the right man for the job. I also am a fanboy to Soderbergh, so take that into it Mm -hmm. but like I said when I went into this I was thinking yeah it's probably going to be Inception or Cloud Atlas at the top we'll see we'll see and I got broadsided it it hit me emotionally or maybe it was just a lolly George Clooney ass there was so (laughs) much George Clooney ass in that movie I was just like well it's got to win every time every time it happened it went up a notch you know he's a serious actor if he's going to show his ass right but then didn't Emilio Estevez show his in like hot charts, hot de? Uh, did he? Uh, poor, poor Emilio. Cool. Thank you so much for Always coming back to Rankin Review. We made it happen again. We didn't. No prizes are being given out, but I don't think we're gonna scrap too much over it. No. If somebody wants to write and tell me that I'm full of shit for putting Solaris at the top, <laughs> please do so at rankinreview at gmail dot com. Uh, there's a lot of love in the room right now, Sky. Is there anything you'd like to say to the kids on the internet? I know, I just, it was, go find those sci-fi movies that aren't the traditional sci-fi. It was refreshing to watch a bunch of these and just kind of be recalibrated in terms of what even fits into a specific genre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you're in the Saskatoon, Saskatchewan area, do check out Shakespeare in Saskatchewan this summer. Please do. Because my boy Sky is directing shows. <laughs> I'm going to plug for you if you're not going to plug yourself. <laughs> Richard III and Twelfth Night. I'm doing Richard III from Storybooks and doing Twelfth Night. I know, I know, it's crazy. I picked Solaris as the best movie of those. That's like, I kept on looking at the list and it kept on seeming crazy, but it's, it's just how I felt.
main characters got burned alive in Prometheus and I didn't feel anything, <laughs> you know? Anyway, it's a very subjective thing, reviewing science fiction movies or any movies. And uh, thanks for bearing with me. And uh, please let me know what I got right and what I got wrong. You can do that by writing me at rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. Please, please, please tell that other movie friend in your life that there's this podcast called Rankin Review and that it's waiting for them. And do what you can to spread the word on the show. We're knocking on the 100th episode, you guys. So anything you can do to help me spread the word on the podcast would be greatly appreciated. As always, this is your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons, saying thank you so much for listening.